You're listening to episode 95 of the Writing Life podcast from the National Centre for Writing, a weekly podcast for anyone who writes. Hello, I am Simon Jones. And I'm Steph McKenna. And it's Saturday the 23rd of May 2020 here in Norwich. So today in The Guardian, we have revealed the latest international literature showcase selection, this time curated by poet, author and playwright Owen Shears. So Owen's selection of writers makes up our fourth international literature showcase. uh, And Owen has chosen 10 writers that are asking questions that will shape our future. On the podcast today, we have Owen in conversation with award-winning journalist and author Chitra Ramaswamy, and together they are discussing Owen's list, which focuses on writers who are challenging us about the past, the present and the future. The International Literature Showcase is a partnership between the National Centre for Writing and British Council, with support from Arts Council England and Creative Scotland, and it aims to focus and shine a spotlight on writers and themes that perhaps don't get as much attention as they should. You can find out more about the showcases at our website at nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk forward slash ILS. Previous showcases over the last year have included curated lists from Elif Shafak, Val McDermott and Jackie Kay. They each cover slightly different topics and the selection of writers is really fantastic. So do check them out if you're not familiar with them already. But yes, today it is all about Owen Shears' new list, and the chat between him and Chitra is fascinating, and they touch upon all kinds of themes. And one of the interesting things about this particular showcase is that it's been months in the planning. We've been discussing this with Owen for quite some time, and with it launching today on the final weekend of our City Literature Festival, it's curious how the themes are so relevant to the COVID-19 situation that the world finds itself in. This was obviously not part of the plan when we were thinking about this in 2019, but it is the way it's gone. As you say, it's a little bit spooky how this has come out at this particular moment when we are all asking questions about what our future will look like and whether you know things should go back to quote-unquote business as usual and what we should be doing to sort of enforce social change. Yeah, a lot of Owen's work in the past is focused on key workers and people who kind of make countries tick over and keep working, but maybe don't get the attention they deserve. And that's a theme that has been running through a lot of our societies since coronavirus hit. So having him as the curator for this list has has been strangely appropriate. And the discussion with Chitra brings up a lot of themes that will seem very relevant to now. So we'll hand over to Owen, speaking with Chitra about his selection of 10 writers. My name is Chitra Ramaswamy. I'm an author and journalist, and today I'm in conversation with author, poet and playwright Owen Shears, who will be revealing his selection of 10 of the most inspiring UK writers, asking the questions that will shape the future. The list was commissioned by the National Centre for Writing and British Council, supported by Arts Council England, as part of the International Literature Showcase, a two-year programme to promote writing from the UK to new international audiences. Hello, Owen. Hi there, Chitra. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Yeah, I'm great, thanks. I found um, a spot in the house where I think my um, sort of being homeschooled children can't be heard. Well done. Well, I am barricaded in an upstairs room with a extremely big bag of washing put against the door so no one can come in. 
we'll see how we get on. Um, So, Owen, it feels appropriate. I I feel like the times dictate, in fact, that we that we begin in in the present, um, which is lockdown and the the midst of the coronavirus pandemic. You know, I think we're probably is it in week eight or 800 or I'm not quite sure anymore. Um, But uh, I just wondered, you know, if you could begin by kind of painting a bit of a picture of your of your lockdown life, your writing life at home at the moment. How's it all going? Yeah, well, it's a it's a fascinating admixture, isn't it? Because um, as I'm sure lots of writers are saying, uh, in one way, there hasn't been that much change to my to my personal life. Well, no, I should say my personal working life in that, you know, there's always a pretty large amount of uh, self-isolation in writing and sort of, you know, hold up in my writing shed on the side of a hill in Wales. Um, so I guess the biggest changes are that um, we've put two young children into that mix. <laughs> it's quite a change. Which is actually quite a change. Um, my wife also works from home. So we're actually very lucky in, in that we're able to split the working week straight down the middle. So I do still get two and a half days a week. and. For the rest of the week, I must admit, having the kids at home, I mean, I'm not sure how successful we've really been with homeschooling, but it's been mostly a real joy. But I'm aware that we're speaking from the privilege of being on the side of that hill in Wales. So we have space, we have access to nature. And I'm aware that, um, you know, that's something that so many other people don't have. So, yeah, in short, it's kind of been some some really strangely lovely times um, interspersed with evenings of... um, apocalyptic dread and you know shards of reality every now and then sort of puncturing through Mm -hmm. I know it's a very kind of complex melting pot of uh, of emotions isn't it Um, and and I wondered I mean even asking you the question beginning with you know the most kind of humdrum of questions how are you but you know those words have become so much more pregnant with meaning haven't they when we're asking people now how they are we're really meaning it um, and, yes. and that kind of made me wonder what what the pandemic is doing to to words, you know, uh, and to writing. Um, is it increasing its meaning? Does it feel more important, or or in other ways, does it feel more defunct and too distant from you know the business of key workers and and you know that that idea that you know writing can't actually fix a a broken leg or, or ventilate a patient? I mean, how are no. you feeling about your craft at the moment? Well, it's a really good question, and it dovetails really with um, how this uh, selection came about, really as well. You know that question that I've always had for whatever reason. I don't know why. Of you know, what is a writer's contribution? If a writer mm. wants to put their shoulder to the wheel, how might they? How might they do that? And of course, I know that you know there should be no shoulds in literature. You know, the only duty of any writer is to try to be as good as they can be. But in this period, it is interesting. I was talking last night with my wife that there's a lot of discussion about how people are turning to drawing and art as a way of looking in the moment and as a way of, I suppose, feeling a connection through all of this distance. And I suppose writing as a form uh, doesn't feel as immediately accessible to so many people in that way. But what it can do in this period, I think, and I suspect it is doing, is that it can pay that close attention. It can be a form of highly attuned memory. And that's what I'm interested in, in that, yes, you're right, it feels very far from the lives and the jobs of uh, key workers. But, you know, in the months and the years after this, in terms of sort of joining the dots and 
and asking the questions about, well, how were those key workers uh, treated? How often did we hear their voices? What were their lives like before this? How have some of the narratives become blunted? How have they become broad? Um, so that kind of paying attention and that inquisitive aspect of writing, I think, will have a huge amount, will have a huge part to play. And to come back to your question, how are we? What I have found fascinating is, yes, people are asking that in terms of each other's mental health, our physical health. But we are aware of this wider conversation of <laughs> that broader question of how are we? You know, mm-hmm. how do we live? Who are we? What are our ways of being? And I think that's something else uh, or another territory that writers, I hope, and I think that they are already playing into, actually, the questioning of saying, well, hold on, let's take this pause, let's take this change as an opportunity to ask those questions. Because we all knew before this happened that things had to change, there has to be systemic change. But in a way, one of the biggest obstacles, it seemed to me, or one that people spoke about was, well, you know, how capable are we of radical cultural change? And okay, this current crisis is tragic, but if it has shown us one thing, it's shown us that we can change. And so I think that's that's really interesting. So yeah, I think in that area, language is certainly feeling sharper once more. Absolutely. And this, this idea that you speak of there, Owen, of you know, uh, our duty as writers to to somehow kind of record the the present moment, whatever that moment happens to be, and and this one is is of deep crisis. Um, it is a real kind of reminder of what you've been doing in your recent work. You know, I'm thinking of uh, the Green Hollow, uh, for example, about mm. uh, the Aberfan mining tragedy um, in the mining village, or I'm thinking about your poem, the NHS uh, 70th anniversary anniversary poem mm. um, this idea almost as poetry uh, as a kind of reportage um, uh, uh, influenced so much by events as they're happening yes that's right and 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 I guess I moved uh, towards those projects and the form of them which is which is a kind of verse drama really um, really as a way of answering that question that had sort of dogged me for a while um, and I'd say perhaps, you know, I took the easy route in answering it, but a route that I've become increasingly fascinated by, which is the concept of the writer as a conduit for the voices of others and the stories of others. So in some ways, I suppose, going back to that bardic idea of, you know, to uh, create these communal stories through lots of individual experience. So, yes, in all of those, in those projects that you mentioned, they very much begin, uh, I, I suppose, in the world of journalism with primary evidence and lots and lots of interviews with other people. And then I kind of create composite uh, characters to kind of hold um, and render these stories. And so I suppose that was my, in some ways, my slightly clumsy answer to that question, you know, how, how can you contribute? And it's given me a huge amount as a writer because, you know, this is very much a two way process. It's not, entirely altruistic yes i'm very interested in giving voice to voices who that perhaps haven't had a chance to be heard before but also what you receive as a writer is extraordinary and i'm always amazed by the generosity of people to offer up their experience into these into these kind of things and i suppose you're absolutely right it was 
that experience over those two projects and an earlier one called Pink Mist, which was mm. based on interviews with recently wounded service personnel and their families. It was the experience of that that led towards this uh, selection that we're talking about today. In that, <laughs> I suppose I was interested in finding writers who were answering that call perhaps in more subtle ways and more inventive ways than I had myself. Mm, well, definitely, we'll come on. We'll come on to that selection. It's it's just such a, a, a fascinating and and diverse uh, chorus of voices that you've picked, and and it really does speak to your own concerns as as a writer, as well as the moment in which we find ourselves. Mm. Um, but if we could stick with that moment just for a minute yeah. longer, um, because I think it's so interesting to think of. I mean, do you see it as a direction that your work has taken? Um, this notion of you know giving voice. Or, or poetry as reportage or, or plays or, or prose even um is it is it something that's happened as a kind of response to uh living in a period of you know great crisis uh turbulence you know i'm thinking pre pre-covid mm. here um mm. you know brexit and and what's happening in america and just that kind of sense of you know climate emergency that the moment of emergency cultural and climate and political emergency has it changed you as a writer uh, made you find different you know want to write about different subjects or or use words in a different way i think it has undoubtedly um and it brings with it all sorts of risks and i think you know you touched upon it there in your question it's when things start to feel urgent and they're urgent in your life and they're urgent in the imminent futures of your children. Um, And that urgency rises to a certain level within you where it has to be addressed. And so initially, I think it also comes from a sense of frustration and maybe, you know, in some cases, a sense of anger even in in certainly Pink Mist, that project with service personnel you know, rose out of me coming into contact with much more nuanced and worrying and disturbing stories of the long shadow of conflict and how that shadow falls across families and communities and how, you know, those dots weren't being joined and those stories weren't being told. And I suppose your instinct as any writer is to be a a counter-narrative to any anonymizing force. And so... Certainly with the NHS piece more recently, again, that felt like an opportunity to tell a more nuanced story, uh, uh, to try to paint a psychological and an emotional map of the NHS, which was this institution which I felt had been ridden roughshod over, you know, for many years. Um, And in some ways we'd forgotten as a society where it had come from and what it had been born from. More recently, you're absolutely right, across several projects, across, you know, opera and TV drama and um, a novel, the climate crisis has occupied my mind. And as I said, you know, this brings risks with it. Uh, You know, I think it's much harder to make good art when you're taken over by an urgent issue that you want to explore and excavate. Uh, So, yeah, it has changed me and it is changing me and I'm still finding my way through that change. And, you know, at times, I sometimes take a step back and say, well, what would I write if I wasn't going looking for other people's stories? What is my story? You know, maybe it's also a, a response to um, your own life, you know, sort of settling down to a certain extent and you having to go elsewhere to 
find things of more interest. But I don't think that's necessarily true, actually. I, I think mm-hmm. it is, it, it, it's, you, you want to people these issues with, with people and with experience. And if you haven't had that experience yourself, then, yeah, I think there's an instinct to go out and find it. Mm-hmm. And you're right to sort of it's it's impossible to unpick which parts of it come from you know the stage of life uh, in which you're at, and also mm. the the world in which we live. It's all just it's all threaded together. You know, there's no need to unpick it. It would be impossible, wouldn't it? Yeah. Although I suppose it it is interesting because the more you look at the climate crisis, you realise as a species, it is an ongoing failure of narrative. Mm. Um, we know what we're doing. We know what we should do and what we can do to avert it. But, but, you know, people who want to tell a different story or who want to postpone it for a few decades and sort of kick it down the road a bit, they have won the narrative. And that's where I am fascinated. What is the role of storytellers and filmmakers and, and theatre? Because I think we have a huge part to play there. Absolutely. Well, the, the, the word that that makes me think of is responsibility. It's just, it's a huge responsibility. But yeah, but I think it's also, it's a massive artistic challenge. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's the very best of our storytellers that I think, you know, need to take it on. Um, because, you know, in many ways, you are going against the grain of, of governments and individuals. Um, but that's what's so interesting about this present moment in that, you know, it's brought the idea of change, the idea of different ways of being, the idea of holding on to some of the aspects of this moment. And I think, you know, just it's just made the conversation more alive and it just makes it feel more possible. Mm-hmm. Well, that seems like a very sort of a hopeful springboard uh, to, to take us into your, your list. Um, mm. So these are these are ten writers um, that that you have selected, and I think it's really interesting that the kind of umbrella term, this notion of ten writers who are asking the questions that might shape the future. In a way, I, it's such a kind of slippery term. Um, I found that very hard to hold on to. I kept having to return to it and going, you know, what are they trying to do again? Because to some extent, it's the responsibility of all writers um, to do that. Uh, and yet, when you kind of really delve into this list and, and spend some time with it um i just found all sorts of really interesting and and subtle um commonalities uh between them and also um they they seem to together uh, as a collective really speak to the moment uh, uh in which we're living i keep coming back to the present because this is a list for now and and now the present i mean one of the things that people are saying about uh the coronavirus pandemic is that it's doing very very strange things to our, our concept of time yeah um and kind of mm. bending it and and elongating it um in all sorts of ways because the part both the past and the future have become very kind of painful and difficult um and frightening places to go so we we just have this present um mm. that these writers are, are working in and yet they have to and you have to and we all have to find ways in which we can ask questions of the future at the same time so I think that's a really interesting sort of paradox because writing is so it's a slow business isn't it Mm. um so so yes I wondered whether uh we could begin before we go through the writers one by one Owen whether you could say something about uh the group um yeah what what you feel that that they maybe share in common these 10 writers yeah, sure. And you're right. It, it is it is something of a slippery term. And of course, you know, all what we hope of all literature and all writers is, you know, is that their works 
ask questions and ask questions of us. But I suppose what I was what I was drawn towards in these writers, you know, and as I said, this list was born in that idea, really, that that question of, you know, how do you capture and render an issue or an aspect of activism and still make really good art? Because it's very hard to do. Um, so I think I was looking for a certain you know, a certain kind of question, the questions that have that sense of urgency about them now and how that questioning happens, you know, and that's about, you know, craft and skill, really, about how these questions are posed within the works. So in terms of as a group, I mean, yes, I think when you first look at them, they look incredibly diverse and they are uh, across many forms, many styles of writing, many sort of aspects of um, perspective and experience. But what I was first struck by um, was their ability to make uh, connections, to look through the established norms, to, to you know, it's a, a phrase I've used actually in this conversation already, to join the dots and to acknowledge and address and explore more nuanced narratives around questions of identity, um, uh, 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 belonging, heritage, um, and of course, part of doing that, although these are very much, they feel like you know, writers of now looking into the into the near future, all of them, I think, have a really extraordinary understanding of the past, um, both on a very, very personal level in quite a few cases, um, but also on that level of cultures and nations as well. So there's a real, an incredibly active conversation, I feel, in these works between the past, who we have been, what we have done and who we are. And of course, those are the components that ask the question, who shall we be? Mm. Um, and, and I think it, it's impossible to read this selection of writers and not ask those questions. Who have we been? What have we done? And where are we going? Something that came through, I mean, it, it's, it's more evident in, in some of the writers like Raymond Antrobis and um, Elizabeth Jane Burnett and perhaps Hannah Laverley it, is, um, is ideas of uh, belonging and um, how those ideas are braided between place and ancestry. Um, but actually, it's something that comes through in nearly all of the works in various ways. And, and I'm really interested in that, the importance of acknowledging how, how, how vital and crucial to individuals, to societies, a sense of belonging is, but also how... And, unless those stories of belonging are told in their entirety and they're not just selective and easy, then they can be quite dangerous. I think at the end of um, Alice Conman's novel, Dignity, um, she talks about how the other side of belonging can become an exclusion zone, you know, like a home can become a fortress. And I think that's something else that, that kind of, you know, uh, connects these, these writers. And the third part, and again, you could argue that this is something you'd ask for any writer, is is a quality of attention um, and attention to the present moment, which I think allows you know allows those uh, 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 connections to really come to the fore in that work. Um, and all of this for me really comes together to address, I think, and to pose the question of you know we are about to go through, and I think we've probably started already a massive repositioning of who we are to each other and even more crucially, I'd say, who we are in relation to nature and the planet 
our home. Um, and I think it's that question of how are we going to reposition ourselves that comes through a lot of this work for me. Um, and that's, you know, everything from Laura Bates addressing sexism, you know, addressing still the greatest human rights crime on this planet, the mistreatment of women and girls at the hands of men, to someone like Elizabeth uh, uh, Jane Burnett, who is going right down into the soil and saying, look, we have to acknowledge what we've done to the soil and, you know, in the long run, what will therefore happen to us because of what we've done to it. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure that's given you a, a coherent overview of them entirely, but this was the territory that these voices and these writers were speaking into for me. And, you know, as I said, when you read them as a whole, it just made those possibilities of who we might be in the decades to come feel very um, alive in the mind. Mm, wow, you've just, it's a, that's a fantastic sort of summing up of uh, the list. Uh, I've got questions fizzing and popping all over the place <laughs> now. Um, but perhaps it would be good to sort of take the writers at this point, uh, one by one. And, and then as we talk about them uh, individually, we can talk about them together as well. Yeah, sure. Um, I think that would be a, a nice way to do it. So so we'll begin, let's begin with Martin McInnes. Um, and mm. Uh, who seems to me, you know, such a brilliantly globalised writer, um, somebody who, you know, this idea of place, which I feel is so present in your own work, place as both a kind of, you know, in, integral, the soil, everything that, you know, Elizabeth Jane Burnett's talking about, um, our, our, ancestry, our ancestry, our heritage, um, but also it is just a springboard to the world. You know, we are living in a completely globalised time now. So, yeah. So, you know, Martin McInnes is very influenced by Clarice Lispector, for example, mm. um, but very much comes from the, the Highlands of Scotland as well. Um, mm. Tell me a little bit about his uh, inclusion on the list. Well, I was just, yeah, I mean, you've um, you sort of uh, put your finger on it um, initially in that a lot of these works are um, are sort of on quite an intimate scale in terms of in terms of place and you're absolutely right. That interplay between the local and the global, that's one of the most pressing questions. You know, how do we keep the best of internationalism, um, but perhaps do away with some of the worst of global capitalism? And so in uh, Gathering Evidence, uh, Martin's new book, I just thought he plays with that sense of interconnectedness on this global level across questions of extinction and data collection. Um, with such sort of a ludic skillfulness, but a really unsettling, really um, unsettling uh, structure um, and voice. And so actually his characters are very much kind of knocked out of place um, and are in this, in, in, in this sort of adrift in this global environment um, in which you feel a sense that there's a search for a sense of belonging in each other. Um, and through these other means, be it through the investigation of a species that is about to become extinct or through what can we capture of each other through the most intimate data collection. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, and I just loved how he wove those two apparently very, very disparate worlds, you know, together um, in, his, in his two main characters. Um, 
you know, we are living in the sixth uh, great extinction. Uh, and that's kind of one of, you know, the driving plot lines um, in this book. Um, and then alongside that, you know, we have John, who is um, a programmer, um, who I sort of, I don't want to give too much away, because something else that Martin McInnes does very well is that you feel that there's a detective novel under this book as well. You know, uh, um, that's the kind of, that's sort of part of its internal workings as well. Absolutely. There's a real kind of playfulness of form and, and subject matter oh, yeah. in his in his work as well, isn't there? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And and sort of in terms of that form, you know, what the opening of the book reveals to us, you know, in my beginning is my end. <laughs> That's not too much of a clue. Um, and then to watch the journey towards that through this interconnection of these apparently disparate worlds of sort of nature conservation um, and data collection apps. Uh, just felt incredibly inventive um, and goes back to what I said earlier. I, I think found a wonderful novelistic way of rendering, you know, these issues that we know are very, very contemporary and that we know are going to define who we are in the future. Um, you know, the uh, 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 degradation of the natural world, the growth of AI, our increasing reliance upon algorithm, uh, data collection, how much of us we give away, and then how much of ourselves we see in what we give away in the online and the virtual uh, world. And so he's really here because, yes, you can investigate that in documentary, you can investigate it in a reportage, um, in academic books. But, you know, there's a reason why we still turn to novels, because they can do things that all of those other forms can't. And I think he's pulled off something quite extraordinary in, in managing to create, you know, a really great novel out of those materials. Absolutely. I'm just thinking as you're as you're talking there, Owen, that he he's doing something so clever in terms of uh, speaking to how disparate uh, it, everything seems at, at the moment but also the kind of connectedness of it all um and there's I, I think that he's saying something about how our brains now work you know with all of the data that's constantly being fed into them and you know even the simple act of scrolling through a social media feed you are just jumping from here and there to everywhere all the time and, yeah. uh, and that I think that's that's a really interesting place to explore in a, in a novelistic sense Mm. And also, of course, this really interesting sort of interplay between individuality and the erasure of of the personal and the unique as well. I mean, you know, this this app that, that the central character you know creates, Nest, which obviously is is the single word that really kind of most obviously joins these two narratives, because um, his partner is off investigating the nests of these chimpanzees. And that whole idea of a nest, our home, on that, on that intimate local level and on a global level. Um, but this app, you know, it thrives on our completely individual movements, you know, second by second by second. And yet, as people become more and more in, in, immersed in this representation of themselves, they lose more and more of themselves. And I just thought that was a rather beautiful and lyrical description of what's happened over the last 10 years in terms of our relationship with our virtual selves. Mm, absolutely. You you used a word there, erasure, that I feel um, it is a good place to kind of uh, move on to 
your second writer. This is in no particular order, this list. It's no, just sure. the, the order in which I happen to have written them down. Um, to, the next one is uh, Raymond Antrobus, um, which I feel like his kind of responses to, to the erasure of all sorts of different cultures and communities um, is so creative and so uh, playful and so moving. I mean, yeah. when you read one of his poems, you, you read them from the gut, don't you? Um, yeah. to, you to, to use a kind of Martin McInnes word, because I know he's quite into the <laughs> gut. <laughs> microbiology of the gut um but, but Raymond Antrobus yeah let, let's talk about him a little bit uh Owen because he is just I think one of the most exciting uh poets and performance uh artists around today yeah he really is he really is and and I think you know um it, it's fascinating because you know, there are quite a few poets uh, like this around at the moment but I think he's one of the best examples of where he's he's brought with him, he's carried elements of that performance world onto the page so successfully. And that's why they work so well on the page as well. And you're right. And, and he's an incredibly moving poet with these, these quite fearless, um, accessible, but um, incredibly skillful poems. And you're right. His uh, uh, collection, um, The Perseverance is absolutely peopled with stories uh and voices that in various ways just haven't been heard or have been silenced or have been kept in very, very specific spaces of the general consciousness. And I suppose that's why he, he's in this list, because if we're going to move forward in anything like a healthier way than we have done over the last you know, 40, 50 years, we need to get better and more comfortable with the multiple and with the different. Um, and, you know, I suppose this comes to the fore most obviously with his poems around deafness um, and being deaf himself and the 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 uh, 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 deaf experience but also around his own heritage um a, a jamaican and british and again i'm sure that we'll be returning to this a few times in this list but it's the way that he keeps that double scale of the personal heritage and the societal heritage kind of constantly in play throughout these poems that I found really impressive um and you're right you know again just as I said you know Martin McGuinness has done something that only the novel can do I, th I think you know that Raymond has taken those elements of activism because that's what's sort of in the DNA of these poems and has just imbued them with so much empathy and emotion and such an acute sense of language um that you you know, he's done something that only poetry can do. And I would say that another very, very strong thread running through these uh, writers is the notion of writing as as activism or a kind of act of resistance. Mm. Or, you know, we've got a few writers here. Raymond Antropus is, is a very good example, but also the likes of, you know, Adam Weymouth or Laura Bates yeah. or, or Elizabeth Jane Burnett, um, writers who are very much... Um, not just politically driven or, or writing from a particular political viewpoint, but that their writing is actually a, almost like a form of direct action. Yeah, yeah. It's so connected to their uh, activism. That's right. And I think that you've really touched upon something there that I think, you know, potentially previous generations of writers would kind of separate, you know, <laughs> um, the political writing and and the life writing. But the political, with a small p and a capital P, I'd say, 
sort of comes to us so much more naturally braided in these works. And I suppose that's really what I was looking for. That's what I was asking for, is for it to live within these works in, in a much more organic way um, that, for me anyway, never feels overtly forced, um, but is handled with, you know, a lambent touch. Absolutely. Um, organic, another lovely uh, word to, to ease us on to the next writer, uh, Elizabeth Jane Burnett. Owen, um, she, what a fascinating book, uh, The Grassling yeah. is. Um, this is, you know, memoir, it's biography, it's a kind of dictionary of the soil. Um, you know, at one point she's rolling around in the fields um, and it turns almost into a piece of performance poetry. Um, tell us a little bit about her inclusion on the list. Well, The Grassling just blew me away because it's such an extraordinary book. I don't think I've ever read anything like it. And it keeps kind of, evolving and morphing under your hands and you know you think you've got one thing and then you've got something else you think yes okay i've got sort of you know a naturalist's a diary and an excavation of again of physical place geographical place but also heritage you know her mixed kenyan british heritage um and she keeps returning to this one field that uh, has been in her father's family for uh, uh, generations um in devon I was fascinated by that. And it, it's interesting because in a book that we'll be talking about later, Dignity, the characters talk about the idea of square mile or um, a Bengali word and a Welsh word, both referring to that unique place that is your habitat. I suppose that's something that Elizabeth Jane Burnett is doing here. It's the depth to which she goes. In the, As you say, she goes deeper and deeper into the soil mm -hmm. until... You're in a world of relationship which is not just, you know, you know, her and her father and his parents before him, or her and her immediate nature. It is it is us and this element that enables us to be, which we have, you know, in some instances, treated so badly. Um and like I said, I think I am paraphrasing, but there is a line that really sang through for me, which where she, she more or less says we should be kind to the soil if we are to be kind to ourselves. Mm, and that sort of idea of the soil somehow containing all of history, you know, if, mm. as you go down into it, you're, you're going, you're delving into the past, you're digging into the past. Um, yes. Such a fascinating um, idea uh, at both a kind of physical and metaphorical level, isn't it? And and there's something about uh, Elizabeth Jane Burnett and a lot of these kind of uh, new nature writers, as they're sometimes referred to, who are kind of claiming this form for themselves that, you know, traditionally has been such a kind of uh, form you know, written really by the, the white middle class uh, establishment yeah. and often usually men as well. So the, the thought of Elizabeth Jane Burnett rolling around in the fields of Devon, <laughs> there's something just so pleasing about that, isn't there? <laughs> yeah, it really is. And that sense of fresh eyes coming to a, a subject and therefore making us, you know, see again. Mm -hmm. And you feel all the way through these works and, you know, um, sort of an insistence that actually, you know, it's not enough for this knowledge of the natural world to be held, you know, by certain academics or, or a naturalist, you know, we need, and I suppose, again, this is one of the questions into the future. We need, every single one of us needs to have, you know, a 101, um, a basic kind of a ground level um, education and awareness of 
the ecological systems that keep us alive. It just needs to be as naturally part of us as breathing. And I think that's what I took away from this book is, you know, that I found really exciting is how much more we as societies, again, as a species have to learn about the place where we live and that keeps us alive. Um, but you're right. It, it, it's also really refreshing. Uh, and we see this again and again in this uh, selection to have, um, you know, ideas of identity, not just rubbing up against perhaps sort of, you know, in terms of Britain, sort of, um, you know, southeastern England or the urban areas, but in in rural areas or in Scotland or in, in Wales, so up against, you know, other ideas of identity that have sometimes um, formed themselves in relation to, you know, to the mainstream or the norm. Absolutely. And and the list really reflects that, you know, the, the next writer that we'll talk about now is, is Garrett Carr. And, uh, and, and uh, you know, it really shows that uh, this is a list of writers uh, from all over the UK. And that seemed to me, um, going through it at this particular moment in time, you know, when you're seeing increasingly that we have a prime minister who, who in some ways just seems to be governing England now. Yeah, um, that's been extraordinary. Have, I know. And just how kind of fractured the country really is. We already knew this, obviously, post-Brexit, mm. but coronavirus is just, you know, putting a magnifying glass onto it. And uh, so it seems so important that you've got such a kind of, you know, all your writers are from very kind of specific parts of the country um, and, and it's such a kind of diverse list. Um, yeah, Garrett Carr, uh, the reason I bring up Brexit, of course, is because, you know, he he's a map maker and, and he his book um, sees him walking the, you know, what we have been calling the, the backstop. Um, yeah. you know, this border, this border that uh, is kind of contested and, and redrawn. And yeah, tell us a little bit about Garrett Carr. I heard about this book and I guess, yeah, I was drawn towards it because of the times that we live in. You know, he walks the border, you know, right when it's about to become, or I think it actually has become, um, you know, the uh, front line between um, uh, Britain and the EU. So it's sort of suddenly invested with a whole other level of importance and significance and story. And so on one level, it's um, it's um, a travelogue as you would expect it starts, you know, it starts at the starts and it ends at the end. But the journey that he takes us on into the idea of borders and how that shifts and changes, and, you know, he starts with, you know, various kind of almost sort of jokes and around the border. And you see the idea of invented borders and sort of arbitrary borders as these strange kind of follies, which then cause such, you know, such strife and a sense of division. And then as he continues on that journey, you know, the joke at various points becomes deadly serious. Um, and I just thought, you're absolutely right, that at a time with so much sort of uh, popular nationalism, um, you know, on the rise across the globe, uh, borders being spoken about so much, um, obviously now, uh, none of us are crossing them, but, you know, before the current crisis, whole swathes of the global population unable to cross borders and then others, you know, skitting across the globe, flying through borders with great ease, and that 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 incredible inequality of movement, and he mm -hmm. sort of crystallised it all into the physicality of a, a single border. And I just think, you know, again, it's one of the most pressing questions going forward. 
are we going to continue to allow these borders to identify us and to shape us to the extent that we have? Or might we, you know, might we sort of move somewhere towards an environment where it's the more porous ideas of cultures that concern us rather than these than these um, impervious you know, borders, which are uh, increasingly defining us at the moment. And, and, and so, again, it's a great it's a great example of what literature can do, um, you know, to take us on the physical journey and on that journey uh, to take us on so many other pathways into the idea and the concept and the history of borders. Absolutely. He, and he's a really good example of a writer. And there are many of them on, on this list of, you know, uh, the, the writer who manages to do something so prescient um, mm. and, and ask, you know, the right questions at, at the right time or possibly the right questions, you know, before the right time. Yes. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I just yeah, I think that uh, this notion of asking the, the questions that will somehow shape the future, that's key, isn't it? for a writer to somehow be able to to both see the times in which we live you know see what the border means right now and understand yeah. what the border might mean you know down the line and especially yeah. living in within the the covid-19 pandemic mm. to think you know both that idea the sort of again from climate scientists that in some ways we did this to ourselves you know how globalized yep. the world has become how much we do cross borders um but mm. also going forward you know how we might um live within borders and and go beyond them um when we're mm. when we're allowed to again um and also i suppose it makes me think of the the refugee crisis um and and how that's impacted absolutely by greater sort of isolationism yeah and again you know it it does ask you know such pressing questions of the climate crisis you know because the climate crisis does not acknowledge borders Mm. um you know and that's the big one and neither does the pandemic no exactly neither does the pandemic and you know there is going to be increased movement of people and you know are we really going to try and (laughs) stick with this incredibly rigid mentality and ideas of borders um, and nations. I mean, obviously, that's the, that has been the initial instinctive response of so many um, societies. But how sustainable is that? You know, and that's really one of the questions that I think Garrett's book you know, asks. Let's go on to your next writer, um, Alice Conran, um, whose work, you've already mentioned dignity a couple of times. Um, yeah. just absolutely fascinating uh, novelist who I believe her debut uh, was amongst the first uh, books to be published simultaneously in Welsh and English um, so so tell us a little bit about about her work uh, that was interesting pigeon her first novel was was uh, published uh, simultaneously and you know you know she's a genuinely bilingual writer um, uh, and we should acknowledge that you know, more of the world is bilingual than not, something that we're not very good at in Britain. And I do think that that brings a different attention um, to a language and how language works. Um, but she's in this list, actually, because of her second novel, Dignity, um, which is just a wonderfully, wonderfully crafted novel, I thought, beautifully written. And I was just so impressed by her uh, characterization. Um, and I guess this is a book that's answering, you know, uh, that call, that question I had is, you know, how do you take 
issues? How do you take you know uh, political ideas and really sort of render them and make them um, human and humane? And I think you know Alice does this in terms of Britain dealing with its uh, colonial past in India. Um, a multiracialism again outside of the urban centres, but on in a coastal town, which we um, um, in Wales, uh, and with this extraordinary friendship between a very very old woman Magda, who you know has a past um, in the Raj, and um, and her carer um, Sushila, uh, and it's also a fantastic novel. Right at the start of this conversation, we talked about you know key workers and how often do we hear the voices and experience of the uh, key workers in novels? And I'd say not much, but in this novel, we get a real, real insight into that world. Um, mm. And it's a book that moves very consciously, actually, towards um, you know, different possible futures. And it does so through addressing pasts, um, addressing past trauma. And again, it's about that interconnectedness, you know, these two apparently very, very different characters. Uh, and then as their stories are woven together, you see the shared territory, you discover the similarities. Um, and I, you know, I mean, I suppose maybe this is a sleight of hand, but I was also looking for writers who I think, you know, I've got no idea what Alice will go on to write, but you get a sense that she's very attuned to the moment and she has the right kind of skills she's properly equipped as a novelist to write about the moment in such a way you know to keep asking those pressing questions and just you know it's a it's a novel that did what you hope the best novels will do you know I sort of came up from its pages thinking about things differently seeing things differently yeah, I think she's a brilliant example as well of, you know, this hoary old question that that's really preoccupying literature at the moment of, you know, around identity politics and, mm. and who gets to write what. Um, and she's just a, a brilliant example, I think, of the, the idea that, you know, anyone can write anything as long as you do it with vast amounts of, you know, respect and empathy exactly. and thought and, and compassion. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, I know because um, I mean, like lots of people, I've always been sort of concerned and worried about that that conversation around cultural appropriation. You know, because I'm worried. You know, if you follow one line of thought, then where do you end? Only certain people can write certain things, and you're absolutely right. Mm -hmm. I think it comes back to that primary duty of a writer that if you are going to write outside of your own cultural orbit, then you just better make sure that you do it really well and you know with respect and with the required research and that you've got the toolbox as a writer to pull it off i completely agree with you and and just that sort of constant process of uh, a self-questioning that a writer i suppose should be doing that's incumbent on the act of writing in itself to always question why you're doing something um, yes you know yeah. the the reason for it, and 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 again, that goes back to this idea of the role and the and the function of the writer. Actually, there was um, a moment of symbolism towards the end, which you know um, I rather like. That also spoke towards this repositioning of humanity to nature. In that, you know, when um, Sushila and various others are involved in in, um, in sort of doing up Magda's house again, and sort of 
in a way giving it a sense of rebirth and they're looking at this lawn this kind of structured lawn that that, that sort of hasn't coped and looks awful and, and they, you know and the question is how do you take this into the future and the answer is well it becomes a wildflower meadow the yeah. answer is is that is 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 that you lose those structures of the past and you go and you go boldly into you know a different kind of future Moving on to Nikita Lalwani, um, fascinating novelist, in some ways a very sort of, uh, you know, classic, traditional, brilliant novelist um, who is just writing kind of stonking, brilliant, clever page turners. Um, (laughs) Yeah, tell us a little bit about her. Her last novel, You People, I think is particularly interesting. Yes, yeah, yeah. And that's sort of, it was that book that really um, made me want to put her um, on this list. I mean, you know, you people, we were talking about um, immigration earlier. uh, um, And, you know, we're talking about the idea of the writer being um, a counterflow to those anonymizing forces, those, those blunted, broad narratives that we might receive through other media. Mm -hmm. Um, And God, if, you know, and I know that there are quite a few books at the moment being uh, written about the refugee crisis and immigration, and there are many, many good books. But gosh, this is one that kind of brings it into such sort of living human detail with sort of great humour and uh, tenderness and excitement. So, you know, in terms of narrative drive. Um, and so I thought for me, you know, it's also a book about kindness, about how to be kind. And, you know, God, is there... <laughs> is there any more pressing question to take us into the future than, you know, how can we be kinder and how can we not be so worried and so scared of the other? Um, But actually, you know, except that (laughs) there is going to be movement to people, there needs to be movement to people, you know, our actions have brought this about. Um, So how can we uh, create an environment where that can happen in a humane way? Um, so yeah, it's very much it's it's a metropolitan novel. It's a London novel, um, a hugely um, a diverse a set of characters meeting in this uh, in this sort of safe house of um, 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 a pizza restaurant, uh, and the stories of the people you know in the kitchen and the waitresses uh, and the owners and how their stories you know interact with that central narrative of again of uh, 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 belonging um, and and place and what what happens when there is a rupture and you you're, you're taken out of those places of belonging or you take yourself out of them because you have to and where else can you find that sense of belonging mm-hmm. um, so yes I, you know as you said it, <laughs> there's nothing wrong with a stonking great traditional novel that really does everything that you ask of it um, but for me, it was the humanity that it placed upon the uh, question of immigration that really sort of you know earned it its place in this list because you know that's an issue that isn't going anywhere, and we need to find new ways of thinking about it. Mm. And you're right; she's a real solid example of. Um, the, the sort of idea that there's all sorts of different ways to to be political in in your writing I mean, mm. she she does it through as you put it compassion um which i think is such a is is a real novelist skill isn't it to kind of enter yeah. the the psychology of your characters and and to treat everyone with absolute humanity yeah yeah mm-hmm. and okay. you know it, it's a great example as well i'm aware that we might be sort of um 
you know, repeating ourselves somewhat, but hopefully that's a sign of the coherence through the selection. Um, <laughs> but, but it is a great example of where, you know, all of those sort of issues that I mentioned, you know, at the start, you know, they're so lightly worn. And mm-hmm. actually what you've got here is a novel that just keeps you turning the pages mm-hmm. uh, because you care about the characters and you're excited to see what happens next. And, you know, that's if we're going to make sort of um, you know, narrative progress with some of these subjects that we're talking about, that's how it will be done by taking people on the story first and foremost. Um, a nice segue into into Hannah Lavery, the next writer who um, is based in Scotland and her performance uh, poetry monologue, uh, The Drift, has uh, has made a big splash up here uh, for good reason. It's, it's an absolutely beautiful work. Um, in some ways, I think she shares something in common with Elizabeth Jane Burnett, that sense of beginning from a place of family um, to talk in much in much kind of broader strokes about the nation. Well, actually, uh, um, um, I was told about the uh, uh, the uh, drift by um, by friends in Scotland, and then so I got hold of the her uh, pamphlet "Finding Sea Glass," which is poems from the drift. Um, and you know, I'd never read her work before, and it was just so <laughs> incredibly sort of vital and energetic and immediate. And again. I'd say she also shares something with Raymond Antipas, perhaps, mm. very successfully bringing that performative you know, heritage onto the page. Um, and as you quite rightly say, you know, braiding really skillfully the personal and the societal. And, you know, it was just very interesting for me to see questions of heritage and identity um, in the context of, of Scotland and of a Scottish identity. So again, not in that traditional access against you know sort of a london or southeastern english um and i just thought that she played that territory you know with real boldness as well um i love i love the inclusion of the spoken voice in 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 her poems be that her children and and and, you know and how those little snatches of dialogue speak into the into the broader concerns of the collection um so yeah, again, asking questions about identity, who we've been, and what does that mean about where we go, and I think you know, again, just further, you know, uh, 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 complicating the conversation about about who we are um, and what our heritage means, you know, and that goes back to what I was saying about Raymond's work because we just all need to get so much better at having that conversation in a more nuanced way. Um, so yeah, I, I just thought it was great. It was great work that felt urgent and very much of the moment. Claire Pollard, your your next writer. Um, there's something about you know that uh, that just voice that just comes at you fully formed, particularly in poetry that that she shares actually with Hannah Lavery. Um, they just they they just kind of come at you. They get you by the craw from the page, don't they? Um, they do. Claire Pollard uh, has been doing that for for a long time. There's something so arresting uh, about her poems. Absolute authenticity of voice, you know. And you know, I think in poetry, it's one of the hardest things to pull off. You know, authenticity is a very slippery term, but you know, <laughs> we hear it when it isn't authentic. You know, <laughs> and there's there's such a confidence with with which Claire, I think, actually, you said earlier that writing is a slow business, and it is. 
but you also mentioned the idea of writers being prescient. And, you know, and for me, Claire is always a few, a few years ahead of the game. She was writing personal poems that, that tackled the climate crisis and rendered it in a very personal environment you know, 10 years ago, um, especially in, in her book, uh, Changeling. Um, you know, I've just opened a poem at random here and there's, and there's, I watched Edward Snowden tapping at his laptop in a hotel t-shirt over his head, all his blood set ringing by a fire alarm test. You know, so she's, she's a very contemporary poet who, in the broader sense of the word, I think, has always written poems that are fueled by a sense of protest or a sense of an insistency, you know, in acknowledging and seeing the cracks and the fault lines in our in our contemporary existence, but also finding the beauty in those cracks. And for me, that's where her poems are born. There's a, you know, there's a fierce love of humanity in her work. Um, and it's both that ferocity and that love um, which really makes it sing for me. But she's always been contemporary and always looking down the line. So I kind of feel like if you want to know where we're going to be in a few years' time, what questions we're going to be asking, I'd normally turn to one of, you know, Claire's books. Um, I thought that's right. If you want to comment on where we are today, just maybe read yeah. a, a Claire Pollard collection from five years ago. <laughs> Absolutely. Also, as someone who spent far too much time in soft play, um, <laughs> she pulls off she pulls off a fantastic poem about soft play. And, you know, <laughs> those for me are the poets to really look for. The people who find poems in places which. Once it's been found, you think, oh, yeah, of course. But until you've read that poem, you think, oh, God, I'd have never seen it there. Um, but she I is, must look she, that out as a fellow uh, yeah. loather of soft play. Um, <laughs> that's, that's the only thing about soft play I want to read, actually. Yeah, well, I thoroughly recommend it. It might not make you want to go back to it ever again. <laughs> it's interesting because Claire Pollard is, um, she, you know, when you read about her uh, work, she's often described as a very confessional uh, poet. And of course she is. But I think what often happens uh, when we talk about women poets is we sort of fail to see how political they also are. And she strikes me as a yeah. deeply political poet. You know, she's got something to say about this kind of late moment in capitalism yeah. um, and the sort of the spirit of the times um, that is deeply political. Absolutely. But that's, you know, but that is what she does. She finds the politics in the personal mm -hmm. um, in a really, really moving way. But yeah, I mean, you know, you get a sense that she's pissed off, but I like that. I really like that, you know. <laughs> there is there's an anger and a rage there, but but, you know, she's very attuned to the beautiful and mm. the lyrical. It's the anger of someone who cares, isn't it? Someone who really yeah, cares. Exactly. Exactly. I suppose you come back to that idea of a fierce love. And you know, I think you know, quite often she's a poet, you know, I give people her books because quite often they haven't heard of her and I never quite understand why, because I'm yet to have anyone come back to me and say that her work didn't speak to them. And what more can, can a writer ask for than that? Um, Adam Weymouth, uh, Owen, let's talk about him because he's another example of somebody who, who his work cannot be separated from his activism. And he was, um, he was a climate change um, campaigner and activist um, in his 20s, I believe, before he became a writer. That's right. That's right. And I think it's all of that background that sends him on this extraordinary journey up the um, Alaskan River, um, the Yukon, following 
the uh, king salmon. Um, and, you know, first and foremost, I should just say that I think it's fantastic writing. You know, he meets uh, uh, multiple uh, characters and his pen portraits of them are incredibly successful. But we talked about the climate crisis partly being a consequence of a failure of narrative, you know. Uh, and here's a written journey that I think really addresses that. And it's the way that he weaves the connections between the human and the natural. And again and again, sort of pointing up, look, we do this and this happens. We do this and this happens. While at the same time, you know, there's a point where he says, you know, uh, uh, connections are hard to prove. It could also be this. It could also be this. So he acknowledges some of the ambiguity. But it's the relationships that he paints between between salmon and God, I've learned a lot about salmon, extraordinary <laughs> fish. But it's the relationships that that he paints and that he really educates the reader um, between the fish in the river and the people on the banks. Mm. And, you know, so in that one singular journey, you know, for me, he speaks to the wider relationship between man and the natural world um, and what's gone wrong and where it could go right. Something that, that Garrett Carr does as well, walking the, the border, um, the Irish border, I just think that these are writers um, and there's many on the list and there's many not on the list um, who are able to look at something. It's that quality of close attention that you talked about earlier, uh, Owen, able to look at something small very, very closely and, and sort of see the entire world in it. And that's a perspective that we really, really need right now. Yeah, I, yeah. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because all of us being sent into our into our homes, into into our, our closer orbits, are are perhaps having more more of that experience ourselves. So yes, you're right. It does come down to that attention of detail, but then it's the ability to convey it in such a way that that people will listen and, as I say again, and will see those connections. Absolutely. And last but not least, Laura Bates, who, um, you know, I think most people would know as a as a feminist campaigner um, of, you know, a real stalwart of the of the scene um, and somebody who with her everyday sexism project as, you know, a complete game changer, really, um, that project. Um, but she has also uh, she most recently wrote a, a YA novel, I believe. That's right. A novel called The Burning. Uh, and that's why she's on this list, because, you know, obviously, in terms of of activism, Laura is the most overt activist out of all of these writers. And and um, her writing in that field has been incredibly, incredibly powerful. I've watched audiences, you know, absolutely feel um, empowered and sort of sort of able to grasp the subjects of sexism and inequality you know, through Laura's writing. And I, I think she really has become an important voice of a generation. And in terms of the question she's asking, you know, as I said earlier, <laughs> one of, if not the most, well, I suppose we can't really rank these questions, but certainly one of the most crucial questions and one of the areas where we can definitely improve as a species is in terms of the mistreatment of uh, women and girls at, at the hands of men. But then, and this has sort of brought us full circle to sort of, a writer being a conduit for other voices. Then she's taken all those conversations that she's had with teenage girls all over the country when she's done her talks and her sort of activism um, um, events, and she's found a shape for them, a literary shape in this novel, 
the burning that kind of you know runs parallel at this historical narrative of a witch hunt and the contemporary version of a witch hunt through sort of sexting um, and shaming and uh, slut shaming and um, and bullying. Um, and I just thought it's a great example of what we've been talking about. How do you take those issues that burn within you um, about which you have great knowledge and find a story to give them shape, which, you know, speaks to perhaps different people in different ways. And I think in The Burning, she's really achieved that in a really ingenious way. And it really ties in, Owen, with what you've been saying about this idea of uh, connecting past and present, um, mm. because I believe that that novel, um, you know, takes kind of the ideas of the 21st century witch hunt um, and, and mm. the 17th century one and, and kind of synthesizes them. And these are Absolutely. writers who are very kind of, you know, the, the brief, this idea of asking the questions um, that will in some way shape the future. Um, as you said, um, and as I know you explore a lot in your own work, Owen, we cannot do that without, uh, you know, continuing to uh, to excavate the past. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think that's what all of these writers do, is that, you know, you know talking about asking questions, they ask some tougher questions of the past. And they say, no, actually, the narratives that we receive, you know, those broader narratives, that isn't good enough. You know, because, I mean, God, you know, it's going to sound sort of obvious, but our futures are born out of our presence and our pasts, um, which is, of course, what makes this this present moment so interesting. So I think, you know, that's something that we might discuss in the classroom or in literary circles. Uh, but now we're kind of talking about it as a society. And I think how this moment is harnessed, how it is captured is absolutely key. Um, but you're absolutely right. That's what you know, that's what Laura does in The Burning, it's what all of these writers do, is that they take a fresh look into the past with that ability to see those connections, with that that special that special kind of um, a nuanced um, attention. And it's all of that that forms the questions in their, in their books, which, you know, certainly for me, um, it sort of means, you know, that you lift your head from the page and you can't help but look into the future. Yeah. Um, well, I must say, you know, I just want to thank you for this list, Owen, because, you know, there are some moments of real kind of despair, um, let's be honest, in lockdown, mm. aren't there? I mean, you know, it's a yeah. real, it's a it's a roller coaster um, of, you know, one minute you're feeling deep gratitude for, for your immediate circumstances and the next minute you're you're horrified. And so there's yes. something, you know, it's, I feel grateful that you've, uh, that you've gifted us such a lovely, diverse um, and hopeful list of writers. So thank you very much. Well, thank you so much for reading them and for, you know, you're the first person that I've been able to have a full conversation um, about these writers that I've been sort of <laughs> holding close for the last few weeks. So, yeah, no, thank you so much. Well, thank you, Owen. And uh, I think we should probably finish there before. Uh, well, I don't know about you, but as I as I said, I've got a. I'm sitting in a room. The door is barricaded by a, <laughs> <laughs> a bag of overflowing laundry, and yeah, I can hear the dog whining outside. I'll be perfectly yeah. honest. Yeah, well, I can hear my kids whining, so um, I think they all need to be <laughs> addressed. <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for listening, and thanks to Owen and Chitra for that fascinating conversation. 
So if you do want to find out more about Owen's list or any of the previous showcase lists, you can go to nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk forward slash ILS. We do have a nice reading list there for Owen's list. So if you have been intrigued by some of the discussion around the writers and want to find out more and read some of their work, do head over to the website. Owen's showcase was also part of our City of Literature Week celebration. This was a series of conversations, reflections and connections taking place across one week in May. So if you haven't done so already, head to nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk forward slash City of Literature and check out all of the commissions that we publish throughout the week. We've got some fantastic tea time reads. We've got a delicate site, which was our interactive guided creative activity featuring Max Porter. And we've got a fantastic podcast as well with Sarah Baum and Elizabeth McNeil. Yeah, all that content is still available on the website. So even if you're listening to this down the line, you can head over and check it all out. If you have any questions or want to get in touch with us, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Writers Centre. You can find our Facebook page or you can sign up to our newsletter at nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk. You can also join our new Discord community where we have a growing bunch of writers and readers getting together to have a chat. You can find a link invite down in the show notes. Please do subscribe, rate and review the podcast because it helps other people to find us. Thanks again. Keep writing and we'll catch you on the next episode. Thank you.